Hello and welcome to the Theology of Work podcast. The Theology of Work project exists to provide a biblical perspective on faith and work. This episode features a talk that Andy Mills gave in 1997 at a Marketplace Network Forum in Boston. Here's Andy Mills. I was trading off God, family, friends, church, ministry, for work. You have this balance and all these things over here which are wonderful, which need time, which need nurturing, which give us such reward were being outweighed by this thing called work. And it was worse than that. It's not work because I'm going to tell you in a minute, work is not the problem. But what was underlying my focus on work was my ego and my pride. When does a healthy sense of ambition cross the line over into an all-consuming drivenness to succeed? And how can we define success broadly enough to encompass all of life and not just our careers. Hello, I'm Dan Smick, Executive Director of the Marketplace Network, and I'll be your host in this series of tapes recorded at our Marketplace forums. In this forum, our speaker, Andy Mills, goes beyond the pep talks and motivational seminars that have adequately dealt with the subject of career ambitions. And he talks about the hidden dangers in climbing the ladder of success. It's my pleasure to introduce our chairman of the board, and one of my best friends, Andy Mills. Before I, I speak this morning, um, and it's just great to see everybody here. Thank you for coming out and listening this morning. Before I, I speak, and success is a difficult thing to talk about, um, but I just want to make one thing very clear before I start, which is everything that I speak about, I want to give the glory to that to God. And without his presence in my life, I couldn't have done the things that I've done. Ray uh, Bandai, who's the teaching elder of my uh, church, Hope Christian Church, has a nice little phrase that reminds me of where I stand. He says, in the, in the equation between us and God, we have to recognize that we add absolutely nothing. You know, you think about success, uh, climbing the ladder of success is another title that Dan allocated to me to speak about. Uh, concept of success is a very, very uh, fleeting one. It's a very elusive thing to think about. I uh, get every year the uh, Harvard Business School Bulletin, and uh, every year after the reunion, the classes get together, and the, the class that's, say, 30 years out writes some comments about how they view life, and they look back on their career. And these are people who are now in their mid-50s, late-50s, who are coming to the end of their careers, men and women. And there are about 12 essays written each year looking back on life. And it's kind of interesting if you, if you look at those things, because Harvard Business School is not necessarily known to be the center of spiritual life around here in New England. <laughs> but it's interesting to look back on what these people say, and there's almost a cry that comes out of these essays. And the cry is, you know, the things that you thought were important when you came out of business school, and as you rushed headlong into your careers for the first few years, are never the things that turn out to be important in life as you get further along. And the things that we find out are important when we become 40 and 50 and 60 years old are very different than the things that we thought were going to be important coming out of the, uh, coming out of the business school. So what you think is important is not. And it's almost a cry to the young people coming out of school to say, think about this before you jump into life, uh, the way you jump into life today. And, you know, of course, we ignore, we read that and say, well, that's very interesting. And then we completely ignore it. And we go ahead and we jump into life just the way we used to jump into life or the way we anticipate it. And most of us over a period of years begin to figure out that the things that we thought were important were not. And I think I would like to share with you this morning three key reflections uh, on my life so far. And they're as follows. 
I would agree with the folks at the HBS Bulletin that what you think is important when you come out early in your career, and there's many of you here as I look around the room who are significantly younger than I am, what you think is important in your career today, eventually you're going to figure out is not important. Secondly, that you've got to be really careful and really deliberate about what you think is success is. And it's worth thinking a lot about what is success. And one thing I would say to you is you can't be successful unless you understand the purpose in your life and the meaning in your life. And if you don't understand what the purpose is in your life, how at the end of that can you say, this was my purpose, this is what I've done, therefore I've been successful. And so many people think of success and focus on success as things without really going back and thinking about the purpose of their life. And you have to be deliberate to think about those things. I think the third thing I'd like to say is clearly we are all spiritual beings. We're not only physical beings, but we're spiritual beings. And we're all on a spiritual journey as we move through this world. And therefore, that is true. No one can have true success or meaning in their life without a connection and a vibrant relationship with God, who is the center of that spiritual realm, through his son, Jesus Christ. Let me just say that again, because I think it's important. We are spiritual beings, and therefore no one can have true success and find true meaning in their life unless they have a vibrant relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. And yes, let me just say that in a world of relativity and pluralism, that is an absolute statement which I believe implicitly and completely. And I'd like to expand on some of those themes as I go through my talk this morning. But let me start by giving you a short background of my career. And then I want to take a few minutes and just share with you some thoughts on business success and individual success within business today, because I think the world is a difficult world and a changing world. And I'd like to just share with you some thoughts on that. Um, the real start of my career is uh, after I left BCG in 1984, I joined a small startup company called Business Research Corporation. As president, 32 years of age, I was president of this corporation. Now, I think for people that knew me over a long period of time, it wasn't particularly surprising that I'd become the president of a corporation. And I mean this in all due modesty, because ever since I was a small kid, I'd come out of an environment in which succeeding and climbing the ladder of success, as defined by material things or position, had been exactly where I'd come from. My father was a, a well-known and a successful businessman in England, if that's not an oxymoron. <laughs> the successful part, I mean. And my whole family was driven towards business. And from the earliest ages, I can remember visiting my father at work. Uh, in those days, there were six-day work weeks. And on Saturday, I used to go to work with my dad. And I loved the whole sense of business. And, and so being in business was something I anticipated. And being a leader in business was something I assumed would happen. At the age of 11, according to my father, I can't remember this, but at the age of 11, I sat down one dinner and said, you know, Dad, I'm going to go to the Harvard Business School. I have no recollection of that, but he told that story for many years very proudly. And so it wasn't surprising to me that I pushed through and, and, and got to this position at a relatively early age. What was surprising to me was the company that I was president of. It was a company that was uh, burning $200,000 of the cash every month. We had $400,000 worth of cash in the bank, and not many of you need to do too much math to figure out we had a problem. We had about two months left. And uh, the interesting thing that I found out afterwards is the other nine candidates who'd been asked to become president had turned it down for obvious reasons, and I, <laughs> I, I hadn't figured that out. And, uh, but it's an actually an interesting and freeing thing when you realize you've only got two months of, months of cash left. We had a thing called fume date, and fume date was the date on which we'd be running on fumes, and it moved about an hour or two every week or every day. 
But the good news is you don't go out and say, well, we've got to reduce costs, we've got to get revenues up, and let's see if we can balance these two things out. When you've got no cash, you go out and raise cash. And it doesn't really matter what's going on with the business. So off I went and tried to raise money. And a good friend of mine, Jeff Parker, and I went out, managed to raise a couple of million dollars over the course of the next uh, two months and kept going. And it gave us enough of a breathing space. We were early in the days of electronic uh, databases and uh, electronic databases of co consumer information and customer information and, and uh, uh, corporate information. And we made a go of it. And by 1986, we were acquired by the Thompson Corporation. And since then, I've been with the Thompson Corporation and more responsibilities being added to me. And as Dan said, today we run a business, the Thompson Financial and Professional Publishing Group. I always liked that name. I, I wonder what it would be like if we called it Thompson Financial and Unprofessional Publishing Group. But, <laughs> Um, it currently has revenues of about $2.5, $2.6 billion and 15,000 people. A interesting business, right in the middle of this whole emerging technology revolution, right in the center of the, uh, the uh, information superhighway, uh, where we don't really know who our competitors and who our friends are going to be from day to day. You know, we have to watch what Bill Gates does all the time, watch what AT&T, MCI, people like that are doing all the time. We also have to keep our eye on two people in a garage, uh, you know, who are building a new technology because uh, platforms are so cheap these days. So it's an, it's an exciting and emerging world uh, and one in which change is taking place very dramatically. And that's, that's the background. And I want to share just a couple of things with you in terms of what I see as important factors today for businesses to be successful and then as individuals to be successful. And I want to move on and talk about more spiritual issues. As I look about business success today and what it is that businesses are going to need to be to be successful, there's one factor that comes up at the top of the pile, and that's the quality of the people. I think more than ever today, business is going to be driven forward by the quality of the people that you have involved in your businesses. You know, the world has changed so dramatically over the 10 years through whatever reasons. If you pick 10, 15 years ago, um, at the time that I was at BCG, for example, in the late 70s and early 80s, one of the things we were focusing on was sustainable barriers of competition. And those sustainable barriers most typically used to be capital barriers. They used to be proprietary technology barriers. They used to be scale barriers if you were building plants and this, that, and the other. Most of those were physical barriers that allowed you to do something different or on a more sustainably better cost basis than somebody else. The thing that we see today is with the advance of uh, advent and advance of technology in particular, is those barriers just don't last any longer. And there are no sustainable, or uh, I shouldn't say no, but the physical sustainable barriers are much less prominent than they've ever been in the past. And organizations of today are called to change and to modify their approach and just to continue to keep morphing themselves and changing into different organizations minute after minute, day by day. If you look at the length of product life cycles today, uh, business life cycles are shorter than ever. And one of the things you need to do there is you need to have organizations that can modify and change that. And that drives through one thing and one thing only, the quality of your people. It's not an organizational issue. It's not a capital issue. Uh, it's not a brand issue any longer. It's, a, it's an issue of the quality of your people working for you. If they are people who are uh, empowered to do those kinds of things, who are prepared to work in small teams, who are prepared to cross disciplines and cross functions, to form in teams and then break up again and come back and form in different teams to solve problems. These vertical issues within organizations become broken down and the horizontal activity take place. You have an organization that has a much greater chance of success in this changing world. And as people who run these businesses, we need to make sure that we provide our people with things like constant training and ongoing development. You know, the needs and the skills of people these days are changing so rapidly, we just can't take a group of people and say, well, we enjoyed your skills for the last couple of years, but now those skills are outdated. Say goodbye and move on that group and bring in a whole new group that has the new required skills. 
for two reasons. I mean, that doesn't bring any employee loyalty, and nobody's going to trust the management at that point. It leads to an unhealthy organization. But secondly, everybody's looking for the same skills at the same time, and therefore we're going out to a marketplace, and we're just not able to find the quality of people with the skills necessary to keep going. And so there's an enormous need for employees and employers to work together to change skill sets and develop and set training in place. And one of the things that we do at Thompson, I think, as well as anything, is to have a big training budget to spend a lot of time. If you come and look at our Thompson University, it's an original title, I know, but we call it Thompson University. I was looking at our brochure yesterday, 90 pages of courses that people within Thompson can join. Now, admittedly, four of those pages are the enrollment form, but there's a lot of pages in there. <laughs> there are a lot of pages in there that have to do with training. It's real important. You know, and it's interesting. Companies are failing on that basis right now in the information technology business. Let me give you three examples of companies, you know, that were very strong some 10 years ago that have completely changed. Dun & Bradstreet. Ten years ago, if you went around and said, give me some list of the top information companies, Dun & Bradstreet would have been one of those companies. 1996, Dun & Bradstreet broke into three different companies to give shareholder value back. Quotron, go back to the early 1980s, there were many brokers here, I know. What did you have on your desk? You had a Quotron on your desk. It's the word everybody used. What, what, what does the Quotron say? Even if you had a different machine, an ADP machine, or Bunker Ramo, or whatever, you'd still call those things often Quotron. Sold to Citibank in 1985 for about 600 and something million dollars. Sold to Reuters in 1984, uh, 1994 for minus 100 million dollars. Take the business and here's 100 million dollars to take the business. Enormous changes. Look at what's going on with Dow Jones today. Who knows how that story is going to play out. But who can imagine that Dow Jones is in the position they're in today and Telerate is in the position that it's in today. Amazing changes taking, in our, taking place in our marketplace because the because of the issue of people and flexibility and change within organizations. Second thing I want to say in terms of success of companies is, is uh, the need to have a healthy organization. And need, if we're going to use people and we're going to bring people across our organization, we need to have organizations that really value people, help develop people, some of the things I've already talked about in terms of training, but who respect people, value them, and basically say, here's an environment, now come and do your best for us. Because it's only if you allow people to do the best in their organization that you're going to get these skills and these values from people. Three areas in addition that I want to focus on that I think are important for businesses going forward. Number one, client intimacy. We have got to understand more and more how to make our companies, how to make our, our clients successful. We've historically, within the Thompson Corporation, talked about how do we help our clients do their job better. Because if you don't have that focus, you're not going to be successful. Increasingly now, we think about how do we help our clients be more profitable and more competitive. Because they're in a tough competitive situation, too. And that's one of the focuses, client intimacy. We think about value add as a real important aspect of our business. Not only is, do we think about how the clients work and who, how we can add value to them, but actually how do we create those products that are going to help them do their job better. Value added, not just more of the same, but do it very differently and bring it in a different package uh, to help the client do their job better. And finally, if nobody's dealing with technology today, you've got a problem. And I don't just mean technology as an enabler, which is the way many companies have thought about technology, but technology is a fundamental core to what you do in an organization. And if that's true today, it's going to be even more true in a couple of years' time. And that, that revolution just takes place. And for all of us, we need to recognize that we are in the next great revolution. 
We're going to look back on this in the same way as we look back at the Industrial Revolution. We are in the technology and information revolution today, and everything we see about our businesses is going to be very, very different in five years. And if we're not thinking about how to get there and what to change today to get there, we're going to have a problem with our organizations. From an individual point of view, what are the success factors? And as I look at individuals, and many of you today, as you think about how to progress your careers, what kinds of things should you be doing? What kinds of things have I seen that have made people successful? A list of five things, very quickly. Number one, honesty and integrity. It doesn't get much of a play these days, but believe me, in an organization, as I look at my people, honesty and integrity is just right up there as number one. Secondly, taking responsibility. As a leader of an organization, I love it when I see people who step to the plate and say, let me take responsibility for that. Not in a grabbing way, not in a trying to expand one's empire kind of way, but just to say, this is a need we have in the organization. Let me take responsibility for that. And then take responsibility for it and step up for whether the thing went well or the thing didn't go too well. And by the way, you have to have an organization that forgives failure too. But for individuals who are honest, have integrity, take responsibility, the organization design that I'm beginning to talk about and this idea of teams being created and breaking up, et cetera, you've got to have people who can play in teams. It's no good being individualist any longer. We need to be able to work in teams openly. While hard work has always been part of the way our culture works, I think increasingly we need to be looking at smarter. One of my mottos, for, for my personal mottos for 1997 is more value, fewer hours my own personal work life. And I need to think a little bit more about what does that mean in terms of what does more value in fewer hours mean? I've got to do things differently. I've got to focus on different things in my own life. And finally, the thing I would say is you've got to keep your ego in check. We all have ego. We all have pride. But you've got to keep it in check if you're going to be an employee that can really add value in your organization. And believe me, if you can come up with those kinds of things consistently, as someone who looks down through my organization constantly, trying to bring people up through my organization, these are beacons, these kinds of characteristics. And a lot of these are character issues. They're not skill issues. They're character issues. When you see these character issues, you pull those people through the organization as quickly as you can. You know, the question that I want to move on to, which I find the more fascinating question, is let's say you are that kind of person in that kind of organization, and let's say you become very successful in your career as defined by position, money, status, power, however you want to define it. The question I want to ask you is, that, is that success? And I want to go back and look at my career a little bit and some things that happened to me uh, that may give you some help along that road. And I want to go back to 1986. And let me just set the scene for you. Again, 1986, we sold the company, Business Research Corporation, sold it to TTC. I was 34 years old. I was the president of a company. I was an entrepreneur with some wealth as a result of the sale. My beautiful wife, one child, one on the way. Nice home in Boston, plenty of toys, plenty of friends. Maybe not the pinnacle of success as portrayed uh, in the movies today, but it wasn't bad. And at the age of 34, I felt pretty good about what was going on in my life at that, from that point of view. But, you know, that didn't really define who I was. And I really want to share with you and be somewhat vulnerable about this, about what was going on in my own life. Not on the veneer on the outside, but inside. Because inside, I was dying. My heart was shrinking. My relationships were dying. My relationship with my wife, and she sat through this yesterday, and she gives me full permission to share this with you today. My relationship with my wife was dying. We got to a point of being friends, cohabiting in the same house. But we didn't have a relationship any longer as man and wife. My relationship with my friends was dying. 
I had a lot of friends, but it was becoming a burden to me. And I felt every time they called me, it was a need rather than I just wanted to say, come on, let's go out and have some fun. Every time they called, it was a need. And I just got to the point where I couldn't deal with it any longer. I was competitive. I was very, very competitive. How competitive was he? He was very competitive. Let me give you a... I basically viewed life as a zero-sum game. If someone else did well, even if it didn't impact me directly, I lost somehow. That's how I viewed the world. I'll never forget a conversation I had with my sister. She actually runs about an $800 million business for P&G. She's the, the, the leading uh, women executive of P&G in Europe today. We come from the same genes and stock, I guess. <laughs> she called me up to say she got a big promotion. I put down the phone. I can remember being angry. I was angry at my sister's success. I was jealous. I was competitive. It was a zero-sum game. That's a shriveled heart. I focused on money. I focused on status. I focused on power. I was self-centered, self-absorbed, lacking in compassion. I didn't put on my notes here, etc., etc. but I think modesty forbids me from going any further, but I hope you get the picture. <laughs> this was a real nice guy. But that's who I was on the inside. More important than that, and you say, heavens, what else is he going to say? But more important than that, I had absolutely no meaning in my life. There was no purpose for my life. What was the purpose for my life? More money? More status? More promotions? More toys? The way I was going? More wives? None of that meant anything to me, and I, just, I was just completely lost. My, I was dying. My heart was shrinking. And I have some questions for you this morning. Are you rushing headlong into your careers? Just blindly doing the things that people expected you to do or you expected yourself to do. You even stop to think about why you're doing some of those things. What are you depending on for security in your life? Is it your job? Is it money? Is it status? Is it toys? Do you feel at peace regardless of the circumstances you're in? And what if we are spiritual beings? And what if there is a God? And what if there is eternal life? an eternal death, how do we stack up on that dimension? And finally, if you can define success as achieving your purpose in life, have we all figured out what our purpose in life is? Those were some of the issues I came face to face with in 1986. Simply stated, I was successful as defined from our culture looking in from the outside, but I was dying as a human being on the inside, and I had no meaning and no purpose in my life. And let me be as bold as to suggest that even people in this room today may be facing that exact same situation today. You know, it's nothing new. It's the oldest struggle in the world. And I want to just turn to a passage in the Bible and just share with you a passage in the Bible. Age is moving on and I have to use glasses, but the book of Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon, arguably the richest, wisest man that ever lived who searched all kinds of things for meaning. Let me read a passage from the second chapter. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I brought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasures of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. 
In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. There's the definition of success. George Soros, move over. Donald Trump, move over. Here was a man who had everything. He did everything with his hand and found all these wonderful treasures. And let me read on the 11th verse. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hand had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. The chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. The problem I had is not a new problem. It's the oldest problem in the world. And so I was faced with a search. I was faced with an issue. What am I going to do? What's my life all about? I was aided and abetted by the fact that my father died and my son was born within two weeks of each other. They never saw each other. But is life just this thing that spins around and the circle of life as the Disney would have us believe? Or is there something more deep here? And is there a spiritual aspect to this that I was missing? So I began my search, and I began my search with Christianity because that's where I'd come out of. And let me give you a brief history of my life in the church. I was a churchgoer. I was a good person. It was a fair God, and since God probably graded on the curve, I'd probably be okay. <laughs> there was my theology. Next. What's the reality of my situation? The reality of my situation was that I had never studied, even though I'd spent 25 years in a Christian church, I had never studied the claims of Christ, or the claims of Christianity. Never. Almost never picked up the Bible. I'd never focused on who Jesus Christ was. I'll never forget a conversation that someone said, well, who do you think Jesus is? And I said, I don't know. Never heard the gospel message. I remember going to a Billy Graham crusade at Oxford University. I'm sure I heard the gospel message there, but I never heard it. And again, let me, sure, let me suggest that this is where some of you are today. Assuming that life's going to be okay because you're good people doing the best you can in a tough world. But I want to tell you that that's not what the Bible says. That's not what Christianity is about. It won't be okay. But frankly, my experience in talking to people is most people don't even think about these things today. They don't even study these things anymore. They don't try and understand what the claims of Christianity are about. Let me share with you the gospel message for those that may have never heard it before. The gospel message that I understood after some study. Firstly, that we're all sinners. Every one of us. We're not fundamentally good people. We're fundamentally born in a sinful state. And we're therefore separated from a holy God. Secondly, there's nothing we can do about that. And we're therefore condemned. There's no works that we can do. There's nothing that we can apply ourselves to that will change that. And therefore we're condemned. But there's good news. Because God loves us so much that he was prepared to sacrifice his own son for us. So that if we simply and fourthly accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior... And that sacrifice is sufficient for all of our sin. We could have eternal life with God. That's the gospel message. It's no more complex, no more simple than that. It's expressed in one verse, if you want to look at it one verse, when you get home tonight, Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. Wages, something that we earn, the sin that we do is death, both spiritual and bodily death. But the gift of God, the free gift given to us, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the choice that we all have to face, and that's the claim of Christianity. 
I studied for about 18 months. I was, went to a Bible teaching church, prayed, read a Bible, spent a lot of time in books like, um, I remember C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. If you haven't read it, I recommend it. 183 pages, the version I had. Still remember those 183 pages. It took me two months to read that book. I wrestled C.S. Lewis on every page with his logic. The good news is that Christianity yields to analysis. You know, I'm not one of these people who's going to jump into this with my heart. I needed to understand it. Christianity yields to analysis. The claims of Christ can be shown to be true. Not in the sense that you absolutely know, because it is faith after all, but in exactly the same way that a jury seeing all the evidence can come to a position that in their open heart say, I absolutely now have enough evidence that I can say that this is true, and therefore I can convict or I can free this prisoner. I got to a point where I had so much information that to deny the claims of Christ would have been more of an act of faith than to accept them. And so it was on Christmas Day in 1988, as I was riding on my bike through the fells in Winchester, that I just felt I had to get off my bike, get on my knees, and say to God, I'm a sinner. I'm sorry for what I've done. And I want to come back into your family. And the good news is that promise is available for everybody. My life's changed dramatically as a result of that. Maybe not from the outside as much, but people who know me well, I think, see the changes. The first thing I want to say is 30-plus years of sin and bad habits don't just get wiped away day one. I love the bumper sticker that said, Christians are forgiven, not perfect. I, I hang on to that. <laughs> but let me tell you some things that have changed in my life. My relationships. I'm still married to the same wife, and our relationship today is as good as it's ever been. We have a great marriage today. We spend time talking to each other. She has become a Christian too. And we just share a passion in God and with our children and time together. And I cannot explain to you the joy that I feel with my wife these days. But not only those, but with friends too. I suddenly find that I have time for people. I look around this room, and I looked around the room yesterday I spoke in. I see friends who I have breakfast with, lunch with, people who are in my church, friends that I've had for an old, a long time who I just feel much more compassion for today. I feel I have to have time for people again. They mean something to me because they mean something to God. And I have deeper relationships today with people than I've ever had. I'm in a few small groups with other men. You wouldn't believe some of the things we share with each other. I mean, we are open, we're vulnerable, we're walking through life together, we're struggling together. But what joy to have that kind of friendship. And I just see some of the faces out there that I know, and it's, I just want to tell you, and you know who you are, how much you mean to me in my life. I have meaning in my life at last. If we say meaning in, is what's important, and by the way, studies today show that more than 50% of mental illness is driven by lack of meaning in people's lives. Meaninglessness is the number one incidence of mental illness, the one, number one reason of mental illness in this country. I have meaning in my life. If you know that God has a plan for you and you're part of his family, suddenly you have meaning in your life. You know, Pascal, the mathematician, said that within each of us there is a God-shaped void. And we all spend so much time trying to fill that God-shaped void with something. It doesn't matter what it is. It's joy, it's pleasure, it's spending money, it's power, it's whatever it might be. We try and fill that. There's only one thing that will fill that hole in us, and that's God. And until you have God in you, you'll never fill that hole. I have joy, I have passion. I'm prepared to do stupid things like stand up in front of you all today and just bare my soul. I'd never have done that ten years ago. But the most important thing is I have freedom. 
I have freedom in my work and I have freedom in my life to do the right thing. Because that's the only thing that matters. And if I did the right thing and got fired tomorrow, that's okay. And the Bible says, know the truth and the truth will set you free. I say amen to that. For me, success is now defined as doing God's will in my life. It's as simple as that. There are no other greater plans than that. Where else could a man be more happy than in the center of God's will for his life? You know, for some of you here this morning, you might be hearing some of these things for the first time. You may have taken a risk to come to this crazy breakfast. And I want to welcome you. And I want to say maybe you're beginning to think about these things for the first time. And if you want to pursue this a little bit further, I'm going to just pray in a minute. But if, we're going to, if you want to pursue these things a little bit further, just ask God. Don't have to do anything dramatic. Just ask God to show himself to you and reveal himself to you. And he will. But for some of you here this morning, you may be hurting. And part of what you need to know is, like I was hurting in 1986, doesn't matter what it looks like on the outside. What, what does it look like on the inside? You might be hurting and lost. And all you want to know is that God loves you more than you can know. And he's just waiting for you to come home. For some of you, you're just lost and have no meaning, and you're just trying to fill your life with all kinds of things to add meaning. For some of you, you just need hope. And I want to say to all of you in that position this morning, many of you who may have been searching for a long time, Jesus Christ is the answer. He's the answer to those needs, and he is the promise of eternal life. You know, if I go back to Ecclesiastes, the book that I spoke from before, and you come to the end of the 12 chapters, the penultimate verse, written by Solomon, and you go through the rest of Ecclesiastes, it's a book well worth reading. You get to the end of it, Solomon, who searched through all of these things, comes to the end and he says, now that all has been heard, here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. He searched everything. He tried all kinds of things. He tried wisdom. He tried power. He tried wealth. He tried everything. And when he got to the end of it, it was all meaningless. And the only thing that was of any value was a relationship with God. And ladies and gentlemen, that's what I am here to tell you this morning in my own life. That's the only thing that's had any meaning is a relationship with God. And the thing that's remarkable is there's no entry fee. It's a free gift. No vegematic. No 1-800 number, 1-900 number, no special gifts. It's a free gift. And it's here for everybody to receive. And what I want to do now, and this is a little bit unusual, and I've got some more remarks after this. It's a little bit unusual, but I just feel that we need to, if you would bear with me, I'd love us now to bow our heads. And there's some people here today who God's been working with for a long period of time. Not me, other people, but God's been working with. And I just want to give those people an opportunity. If this is where you're in your life, and you want to say, yes, Jesus, I want to bring you into my life and I want to come home. I just want to give you that opportunity right now. So if that's what you'd like to do, we're all going to bow our heads and I'm just going to give a little prayer. And if that's where you're at, just repeat the prayer in your head, not out loud, just in your head. It doesn't matter if you don't get the words right. God knows what's in your heart. Let's just take a minute and let's bow our heads. And for those that want to come and know Jesus, just answer, answer in this way and just uh, follow my leading. Dear Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. And I believe you died for my sins. And right now I turn from my sins and open the door of my heart and life. I receive you as my personal Lord and Savior. Thank you for saving me and giving me eternal life. Amen.
some of you this morning that may have accepted that, you've now become part of the family of God, and I just want to welcome you. You'll be the first to do so. The book of John says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, and that's exactly what you've become this morning. You'll see a response card on the table, a little yellow card. And on that, at the bottom here, it says, I'm interested in an opportunity to further discuss with Andy Mills the decision I made this morning. For any of you who made that decision this morning, at the end of the breakfast, don't do it now. Don't feel embarrassed to fill things out, and this, that, and the other. Just at the end of the day, if you fill that card in, just put it in the middle of the table face down. For anybody who made that decision this morning, I'll meet with you over the next week or so, depending on how many people it might be, and let's talk about that decision. And Let me welcome you personally, and let me get you on the right, on the right path in your new life. So it's on the card, and if you'd like to fill it in, I'll follow up with you. But you know, the exciting thing is that God's going to start to change your life. And I want to really change my focus from those of you here who are seeking to those of you there who have given your life to the Lord over the course of the last many years. And I want to challenge you a little bit, I think, in terms of how you're living your life. Because God's really worked, as I've mentioned, changing my life, but he's changed my life also in the marketplace. I want to just describe that to you a little bit. In the book of Luke, chapter 18, there's a parable that's really had an impact on me. It's the parable of the rich young ruler. And just to reiterate what the story is so I can get everybody up to speed, Jesus meets with a rich young, a rich young man, and he says, Teacher, what do I have to do to inherit the kingdom of God and have eternal life? And Jesus said, Well, you have to keep the commandments and the laws of the prophets, etc. And the young man's excited, and he says, I've done all of that. From the beginning of my time, I, that's what I've done. And Jesus basically, understanding this man's heart, said, there's one other thing that you have to do, is you have to give up all your wealth and walk away from everything and come join me. And the, rich, the, the, the passage says the rich young ruler was sad and walked away because he had great wealth. And he didn't want to do that. Now, for some of you who may just have accepted Jesus as your Savior, you might be saying, this is great, I've just accepted the Lord, and now I've got to give away all my money. Uh, <laughs> I wish you told me that five minutes ago. <laughs> but that's not what the meaning of this piece is about. The meaning of this piece and why it's been so important to me is God says, God knew with that rich young ruler that the thing was at the center of his heart. The idol, the God that that young man had was money. Many of us struggle with idols, things that we have at the center of our heart that are not God. And God says, I want your heart. I want your core. I want your very being. I want to be the center of everything. And he's challenging us all to say, what is at the core? And be prepared to give it away. You can't serve two masters. And what I realized after, and I'll, I'll go through the, the process, but what I realized is I was serving two masters. But work to me was still my idol. Work to me was still where I derived my self-worth. Work to me was where I got my security, whether it be financial security or status or people affirming me in terms of what I was doing. It was certainly where I spent my priority. And I tell you, the most condemning thing that we all carry around with us is our daytime. If anybody dares today when they get back to the office, just look through that daytimer and say, where is your priority? Mine was horrible. Work was still the center of my desires. And so the parable to me said, God is not fully center of my life. 
work was still the center of my life. And every time that God challenged me, I was saying, God, I want to do it my way. What I call the Frank Sinatra view of Christianity. You know, do it my way. And every time I made a decision, the prayer was kind of like, God, I'm going to do this. That's okay with you, isn't it? And unless I don't hear from you, I'm going to carry on and do it. And that's how I made my decisions. Well, God, let me tell you, God, when he gets a hold of you, speaks to you in ways that you will understand. Some people, he speaks in a whisper. With me, his favorite instrument is a two-by-four. And uh, my daughter was uh, with me yesterday. She's uh, 11 years old, and she listened to this yesterday and heard this for the first time. And I didn't get through this, so um, bear with me this morning. But the two-by-four was a poem that I accidentally found that she'd written. Not that she'd given to me, just that she'd written. And the opening two lines were, Daddy, where were you when I climbed a tree? Daddy, where were you when I skinned my knee? And I can't tell you anymore because I wouldn't be able to get through it. And I realized that I was trading off everything that was dear to me and everything that was important for me and everything that was a relationship and everything that had eternal meaning for work. I was trading off God, family, friends, church, ministry for work. You have this balance, all these things over here which are wonderful, which need time, which need nurturing, which give us such reward were being outweighed by this thing called work. And it was worse than that. It's not work, because I'm going to tell you in a minute, work is not the problem. But what was underlying my focus on work was my ego and my pride. And when I really got down to it, that was what was driving my life. That was my idol. That's an idol I still battle with today, is my ego and my pride. And in one pan of the, of the scales were ego and pride, and in the other was everything else I had held dear. And guess what? Ego and pride was winning. And I recognized that I couldn't do that, and God wanted my core, and in so many ways he showed me that. But Victoria's poem was the arrow through my heart. And again, I'm not saying that work is wrong. But for me, when I go back to the parable of the rich young man, Work and my ego was at my core, and God said, I want you all. So eight months ago, a decision that some people in this room know, um, the presidency of the Thompson Corporation, this $8 billion corporation, and the new president's going to be announced on Monday. That'll be news to some of you sitting in this room, but it'll be Monday. Uh, I was in that race until eight months ago. I let other people judge whether I was ahead, behind, in the middle, or whatever. But eight months ago, I went and I withdrew from the race. Everything I'd ever wanted in my life, everything I'd driven myself to, I just withdrew from. Because I said, I've got to slay my idol. And I did that. You know, there's another parable in the Bible that's impacted me greatly. It's in Matthew 25. It's the parable of the talents. Again, a rich landowner goes away and he brings in three servants and he gives one five talents, one two talents, and one one talent. And says, look after these for me and I'll, I'll be back. Some time passes and he comes back and the first servant who had the five talents comes and says, Master, I've invested and I've done wisely, etc. And here are five talents and here are another five talents. So here are ten talents. And the landowner says, well done. And the second man who had the two talents comes back and he said, I've invested wisely, I've worked hard, here are the two talents and here are two talents more. And the landowner says, well done. 
And then the third one comes back and he says, you gave me one talent and I know you're a tough master, so I buried it in the ground and here is it back. And the landowner threw him out, gave the talent to the other people and condemned him. You know, one of the things we've all got to recognize in this room is we've been given a lot of talents. God has given us a lot and we are going to be held accountable for how we use those talents. And I made the decision in my life status and power had to go into second place and how God wanted me to use my life was the most important thing because I'm going to be accountable for that at some point and all you are too and we need to make sure we get those priorities right so let me ask you this morning have you slain your idol you know what it is is work a ministry to which you've been called you think of it that way or is work an ongoing search for meaning in your life? However that's defined, whether it's ego gratification, pride, whether it's power, whether it's money. I had one gentleman came up to me yesterday, bless his heart, he said, you know, this has really touched me. He said, I have a problem with money. I've got to deal with that. What is it that's at the center of your heart? When God looks at that heart, as only he can, what does he see? Does he see himself at the center, or does he see something else? Because he knows. What do you depend on for your security? You know, there's a lovely story that I heard from one of the teaching uh, pastors at Willow Creek. He said, God's like a, uh, it's like a, a high wire act with the trapeze, and God is the ca- Jesus there, Christ is the catcher. And he's on that swing going backwards and forwards, and he's never dropped anybody. And the jump is exciting, and it's fun, and you get to safety on the other side. And you're hanging on to that trapeze, and you're going backwards and forwards, and you're about to let go, and you hang on to that trapeze, And a lot of people just can't let go of that trapeze, even though what's on the other side is far greater. What is it that you're hanging on to that trapeze? What is it that stops you from letting go and saying to God, take my life completely? For me, it was ego and power, ego and pride, and I had to slay that. You know, and at the Marketplace Network, that's what we're really all about. We're about taking people like yourselves in the marketplace and saying, how can we help you make this paradigm shift? How can we help you move from self-centered, self-absorbed careers to Christ-centered ministry? Just think of the power if we all got behind that. And what's the reward for that? The reward for that is to be right at the center of God's will for your life. How else can I define success more powerfully for you? That's the real definition of success. You know, Howard Hendricks tells a story of a businessman who walked into his uh, office Coming to the end of his career, he just slumped in a chair and he said, you know, Howard, ever since I was a young man, I put my ladder up against the wall and I've been climbing that ladder day by day, rung by rung. And you know what? I just got to the top of the ladder only to find out that I put my ladder against the wrong wall. You know, there's so many of us today putting our ladder against the wrong wall. There are tremendous rewards putting your ladder against the right wall. Well, let me just finish the Victoria story for you. I told her of my decision on my career. And we were walking to the ice cream store one day, hand in hand. And she just squeezed my hand and she said, Daddy, she said, now I know you love me. What a reward for a father. Let's help you put the ladder against the right wall. Let's help you find true meaning in your life. There's so many things that we can do to help so that we can all face God one day 
and just hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Thanks very much. Andy has certainly put the challenge right out there in front of us. I hope you've derived some lasting benefit from his speech to this capacity crowd in the main ballroom at La Meridian Hotel in the heart of Boston's financial district. Now continue listening to Andy as he fields a couple of questions from the audience. Any questions? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. For those of you who didn't hear that, that was in a reasonably powerful, powerful position as you're in. How can you be safe in sharing your faith with colleagues and without overstepping boundaries? And I think it's a good question. I think my ministry at work has two aspects to it. And let me just say those two aspects. The first one uh, is what I describe as the cultural mandate, which is what I discussed last time we spoke, which is really to provide a culture in the organization. If you want to figure out the cultural mandate, go back to Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and, and Psalm 8. Uh, but basically, I believe it's our responsibility to set a culture and set a, an environment and create that environment, shape that culture in a way that is... Um, that, that, that's appealing to people that is God-centered in the way it is. I mean, it doesn't have to be explicitly God-centered in terms of its wording and this, that, and the other, but uh, as a leader, one of the things you need to do is set that culture, that mission, that vision, et cetera, which is, which is Christian-based. I think the second thing you've got to do, though, is personal witness. You know, sort of the Great Commission aspect of this. So you have the cultural mandate on the one hand, the Great Commission on the other. Uh, and frankly, you can't do that by overstepping your bounds as a leader. I mean, you know, the well, this is great. We're going to be on a plane together for three hours. Now, I'm, I've been looking forward to this opportunity. I brought my Bible with me, and I want to tell you some things that are real important here. And, and the, your future development in the corporation could depend on how you respond. I, I don't want you to feel any pressure, but that's probably not appropriate, although, although I've been tempted. Um, I, and I think what you have to do is through your own per personal witness, the way you deal with things, it's just like any personal ministry. It doesn't matter if it's in your, in your church. It doesn't matter if it's in your neighborhood, with your family, in the workplace. I think it's exactly the same thing. You've got to live your life. You've got to walk the talk. Uh, you've got to be there for people. And I think the other thing that I would suggest is, is, is what happens as a result of that is people become curious. And, uh, you know, you've got to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within at any time. Uh, and, I, and I find lots of opportunities have opened in a very normal, natural kind of way, particularly when people have issues or problems and they just want to come on in and talk. Uh, the other thing, I think, is pray. Uh, you know, pray for those opportunities. You know, uh, too often we think that this is a, an us thing, this evangelism, but it's not. It's, it's God at work, and we're just, we're just instruments. And just to pray to him to say, give me those opportunities and be specific. And, but the key is to, is to focus your life on him in the quiet time and be right with him, then ask for those opportunities and he'll bring them. Yeah. Well, the first thing I did, which was a scary thing, is we, we both came to the same point about eight years ago where we said, this isn't working as well as we'd like it to. We'd both become Christians and we both said, look, our marriage is not the marriage that is honoring to God and this is not what God wants in a marriage. So let's sit down together and talk about the issues. And believe me, that's the scariest thing in the world is to say to your wife, tell me what I'm not doing as a husband that you'd want me to do. Now, I ran out of, I ran out of paper. I mean, I brought... <laughs> you know, we were at a hotel in a conference. So the, and the key thing, by the way, is not to do that between putting the kids to bed. and I mean, go away for a period of time. We happened to be at a conference, and we had a whole afternoon together. It was in Phoenix. It was a beautiful sunny afternoon. We were sitting out by the pool, and I brought one of those, you know, the little message pads from the... Uh, from the hotel thing, and I started to write in reasonably big letters, and then I got to the second page, and I, 
I ran out of paper, but uh, that's a scary thing to do. But I think the first thing is you've got to start by taking the time and communicating with each other to say, what are the dimensions in which we're not working? And I, this is just me, I have to work with checklists. I mean, I'm famous for my list. Okay, these are the things I'm going to do as of tomorrow. If I can't come away with a list of things I'm going to do, I've got a problem. <laughs> so I came away with a list of 10 things. Let me tell you what one of those things, I mean, let me tell you what a few of those things were. Number one was I bring coffee to my wife in the morning. You know, it was interesting. Um, I mean, why, why is that an expression of love for my wife? It's an expression of servanthood to my wife. It's interesting. My wife was at a Bible study some years ago, and, and the question is, how do you know if your that your husband loves you? That was the question that was asked. My wife said, because he brings me coffee in the morning. Now, I didn't know, quite know what that meant about the rest of our relationship, but... <laughs> but uh, but, you know, little things like that are very, very important. Other things where we've, we've started trying to go on dates on a regular basis, you know, with two kids and this, that, and the other, and busy schedules. Get time for each other and spend time with each other. Pray with each other. There's nothing like being in ministry together. I mean, just to feel God uh, working with you. Uh, it's really been a wonderful time. And there's some clear things that most men do, uh, listening and really understanding what my, my wife is saying is, is, is one thing. We got to a stage and you're going to laugh at this again, where I needed my wife to say, now, what I'm about to tell you is really important, so I want you to listen. <laughs> Versus everything else she said to me, you know? And, and so I've had to learn those kinds of things. My wife also needs a safe place that she can bring her issues. And she always felt that because I was so busy with work, the last thing she wanted to do was to sort of bring issues from the home and with the children to me, because she just realized that I had so much to do that she didn't want to burden me with that. But if, if she doesn't bring the things that she's going through, we're, we're, we're sort of colleagues. We're not, we're not in a marriage. So I have to find a safe place that my wife can, can come. And what I've agreed to do on that, it's probably far more detailed than anybody wants to hear, but what I've agreed to do on that is when she brings issues and things that she thinks aren't working as well, I've agreed to take a position that sort of stands away from being me and observes and try and understand what she's saying so that I understand what it is that's really a problem with her. So there's a lot of things that have to happen over a period of time. But if I said one thing, it's communicate and really listen and let your wife really communicate with you. And I, I think it's vice versa with work, too. But it's, a, it, it's one of those things. It doesn't just happen. You've got to work at it, and you've got to make it. And, and the other thing I'd say exactly the same here is bathe it in prayer. God wants that marriage to be a union of three people, you, your wife, and God. And just invite him to be there. And, and he's been able to do the things that we couldn't have done. That was Andy Mills. For complete show notes, go to www.theologyofwork.org slash climbing the ladder of success. For more information, visit our home on the web, theologyofwork.org. Find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at TheoWorkProject.